Please remain standing as we continue worship with a reading from Luke 14. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have a married wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome to church, y'all. Please have a seat and say hello to someone as you sit down. Morning, team. How we doing? Everyone hanging in there? Enjoying this nice cold spring? All right. Uh, my name's Chris. I'm super glad you're here with us today. Um, today, I'm going to invite you into probably one of the most popular Christian practices that we know of. Um, so popular, it's possible uh, that you grew up in church and have never heard a sermon on what I'm about to talk about. Um, what is this popular practice? Uh, Christians generally don't talk about. It is the practice of fasting. Okay, I had wait for applause here. Um, right now, you're either thinking, I knew I shouldn't have come today, or you're thinking, you know what, I'm trying to lose some pounds, so this is going to be great. Um, fasting, not our favorite practice. Um, not popular for obvious reasons. I don't like being hungry. Uh, I get hangry pretty quickly. In fact, I'm fairly certain um, that there are plenty of people in here who have been a Christian your entire life and have never participated in fasting at all, which is totally cool, which of course leads us to ask this question, are Jesus' followers actually really supposed to fast? Uh, that's a real question, isn't it? Some of us probably have that. You're like, I've never done that. I don't want to do that. Is that required? Well, is it an, I guess maybe we should, we should phrase it this way. Is it a New Testament reality? Is it a New Testament reality? See, some of us have never considered it because to, in our minds, it smacks of legalism. So if you're a Christian, you know what that word means, right? Some of us have never considered it because they say, I don't fast, number one, because it's legalistic. Number two, because I don't hate myself, you know? And God loves me, and he made food, and we should eat with happy hearts and give thanks to God. Yes and amen. Uh, we think other religions fast who are trying to prove that they're holy or get some attention from some deity. God loves me, bro. My cup overfloweth, right? I got a river of life. Gush, 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 right? Got the Holy Spirit. We don't need to worry about mourning and fasting and why on earth would I fast? Didn't Jesus say, how can my disciples fast when the bridegroom is with them? He did. So we do need to answer a question first. Is it a New Testament expectation? Did Jesus expect his followers to fast? Because if fasting is a New Testament expectation, then I want to dig into what makes Christian fasting exactly Christian. What makes it uniquely Christian? So no matter where you're at on the spectrum, whether you're a Christian or not, I think you're going to find this interesting. Did Jesus expect his followers to fast? Is it a New Testament reality? Do we see examples of this in the New Testament? Um, all you have to do is dig into some scriptures that many people quote as to why Christians don't have to fast and read the whole thing. It's very fascinating how that works. 
Uh, if you just take that one scripture we just said about Jesus, well, they can't fast with the bridegrooms with him. If you just read the scripture before and after, <laughs> it's very interesting. Okay, so let's do that together. Uh, Matthew 9, verses 14 through 17. So we're going to read the before and after. Okay, then the disciples of John came to him, being Jesus. Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? So people say, see, off the hook. Oh, uh, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they're going to fast. See, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment, and worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wine skins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But the new wine is put into fresh wine skins, so both are preserved. So when Jesus talked about the day he would go away, um, he's talking about his death, resurrection, and, and ascension. That's what he's talking about. Physically, he's gone, right? When that happens, then my guys are going to fast then as well. Um, but Jesus is even more clear in Matthew 6. Check it out about this expectation. I know I'm answering questions some of you don't have. It's okay. We'll get, we'll get there. Um, Jesus, uh, uh, Matthew 6, verses 16. He says this. This is the famous, most famous sermon ever given. It's the bedrock of Christian thought, Sermon on the Mount. Okay? the bedrock of Christian thinking, this sermon right here. And this is what he says. When you fast, hmm, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward in full. But when you fast, anoint your head with oil, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus clearly has his expectation set that his followers are going to fast. But he's keen to point out one thing really important, isn't he? The difference of his fasting, of his followers fasting versus the fasting that they were uh, familiar with. See, the fasting that they were familiar with and the fasting that many of us are familiar with can be likened to revving your spiritual engine at a red light. And I'm talking about? So that the guy next to you is going to be impressed, right? Right? Some of us, some of us think of fasting like that. We do. Why should I fast? To look more spiritual. Okay? To prove to everyone else that I'm as spiritual as they are, daggummit. Right? See, we, uh, we hijack religion. This is, happens all the time in all sorts of practices, going to church, singing songs, all sorts of things. We hijack it to prove to everyone around us that we're better than them. Right? And it, and it smacks of high school, right? I'm prettier than you and skinnier than you, right? That's how people, some people think about fasting. Some people think about many religious things. But Jesus says, not you guys. Not you guys. When you fast, you're going to do it straight to God. For his eyes. No one else's eyes. No one else. So from the offset, Jesus wants his followers to get the motivation really clear. The one thing fasting is not for is a spiritual form of I'm better than you. So Jesus wants to make that real clear, right? He says, that's old wineskin stuff. That's, that's old approach. Here's the new approach, right? For now, let's just point out Jesus clearly expected his followers to fast by the words, when you fast. Have I convinced everyone? I don't know, maybe not. But lo and behold, when we look at the book of Acts, we see the early church fasting. Two examples, uh, more than that, but two primary examples in the book of Acts, Acts 13 and 14. Um, and both times... This act of, of going without food is paired with worship. Acts 13, 2. They were worshiping and fasting. 
And it was very fascinating. It's in that state of worshiping and fasting that they heard the voice of the Holy Spirit. It's very fascinating. That's, it's, it's in that atmosphere that they got direction from God about sending Barnabas and Saul out on mission. So they pray and fast some more, and then they send them off. In 14, in Lystria, Lystra, I think it's called, um, they've just, the other example in the book of Acts is, is in 14, and they have just chosen church leaders in Acts 14. And in 23, it says, with prayer and fasting, they committed them, that's the elders, to the Lord. So what we see is that fasting was understood as an act of worship, and it's paired with worship and prayer. It's in that category. And it's done to, number one, hear the voice of God, to seek direction, and number two, to commission for and commit to the work of God. This is the presence of fasting in the New Testament. We tracking? It's exactly how, actually, we see Jesus himself fasted 40 days and nights before what? Before he went on his ministry. It was a commissioning, a committing to, you understand? And you can bet the farm if it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander, all right? The Old Testament, full of examples of fasting. What's interesting is in the Old Testament, it's primarily linked with repentance and mourning in the Old Testament, all right? So people will fast to mourn sin. They'll fast to mourn sin of the nation. They'll fast to repent of sin, personal or corporate, or they will fast to beseech God for intervention, to ask God to intervene. That's, what, that's how you see fasting in the Old Testament, right? So a uh, little city of Nineveh. You remember that city? Who was sent to Nineveh? Anybody? Oh, good job. When um, this horribly secular city um, repents at the underwhelming preaching of the prophets, what do they do? They fast. They fast to return to God. David fasted uh, when his illegitimate child is born and appears to, he's going to die. David fasts to ask God to spare the child's life. Uh, Joel 2, the prophet calls the entire city, the whole city, to fast, to repent, and mourn in case God will have mercy. And he does, in that example. So, now that may not be enough to convince you that fasting is a, is a biblical reality. Maybe it is. But I would in no way assume is enough to convince you that you should do it. <laughs> right? You can see that and say, well, good for them. Next topic, pastor. I'm with you. So let's take a step back and ask some other questions. All right. Some of you know, uh, may know that the church is in a season, a traditional season right now called Lent. Um, Lent itself is not in the Bible, that word, but I found the routine of observing historical church seasons to be very useful for my own spiritual soul. Uh, number one, because they have, they create reminders in my heart of the rhythm of the gospel. Let me give you an example of how church seasons create the rhythm of the gospel. In Advent, that's a church season. Um, it's that God's gift to us is free in Jesus. In Lent, it's an invitation to repent because of the free gift of Jesus. In Pentecost, this is the, God's reminding us of the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. That's absolutely essential if we're going to be a Christian. But number two, Lent specifically, I, want, I like this season because it calls me to some practices that I would otherwise gladly ignore. <laughs> Primarily fasting, right? And repentance and confession. What exactly is Lent? It's this season that leads our heart up to Easter. That's kind of the function of it. It reminds us that repentance and confession and grieving our sin, taking time to think about our thinking. Remember last week, think about your thinking. In light of God's generosity is an essential part of the gospel story. And if there's any part we'd rather forget, it's certainly that part. 
It's certainly the part where I have to admit my own contribution to the mess of brokenness of humanity, right? But we forget, y'all. We can't. Dude, uh, the admission of guilt and sin is kind of a prerequisite for a thing called forgiveness. So it's very fascinating to me how hesitant some of us are to admit that we're in the wrong sometimes when if you don't do that out the gate, you're not a Christian. Like it's kind of the first door (laughs) to get in, to raise your hand and say, dude, I am messed up. Like I got things in me that I can't deal with and I'm gonna get that out in the open. That's kind of like step one, y'all. Let me tell you why I can acknowledge and call you to acknowledge sin and failure with boldness and eagerness. Because number one, as humiliating and regretful and mopey as we think Lent sounds, it comes to us as the landscape around us is exploding in color, isn't it? Have you noticed? Are you too busy to see it? Have you noticed outside? The landscape's exploding. You guys seen the wisteria on all the trees next to the highways? It's this purple, like, grape-looking thing. Beautiful. Flat. The grass is greener. The trees are springing. The trees have looked dead. Any reasonable person could stare at trees in the winter and say, those are dead, right? And have you noticed that they're not? They're not. They're coming back to life. Dude, there's, the landscape around you is trying to tell you something. Dude, it's exploding with new life. I can eagerly call you into this because repentance and confession is the door to new life in the Christian story. Y'all, it's the door. Are you stuck in winter right now? I got good news for you. You could deal with that today. Something called repentance. Something called owning your sin. Dude, and if you will do the promise of the gospel, y'all, is if we will get real about the condition of our soul, the real condition Not some pretend version of our soul 10 years from now, but own it right now that new life floods in. Dude, just like the landscape around you, I can eagerly call you into this, man. This is not Eeyore, mopey Christianity, thanks for no... No, dude. Dude, it's the door to life, bro. Hmm? So, number two, your sin will remain in control over you as long as it stays in the dark. So I just have no problem saying, y'all, let's spend 21 days... And let's ask God to sift us. Let's ask him to reveal to us the things that are cancerous to our soul and in his mercy remove it, right? Every spring, when creation around us begins to bloom and blossom and the colors flood back into the landscape, I don't remind telling you that the door to the color and vibrancy flooding back into the landscape of your life, the refreshing of the Lord is called repentance, right? Hmm, it's good. Repentance... It's not just a turning from sin. It's a turning to God. It's not just saying no to sin. It's more than that. Saying yes to God. Or you can say it this way. It's not a running from. It's running to something. So with the rest of our time, how does fasting help us do that? How does fasting help us, like Hebrew 12 says, lay aside every weight and sin and run towards God? How does fasting aid us in this process? Well, number one, fasting is not only fasting from food. All of you said amen. Yeah. Uh, you can fast from just about anything. You could fast from your phone. I dare you. You could fast from the 24-hour news cycle. Please and thank you. You can fast from filling your evening with watching TV or, mo- or a movie every free second you get. You could fast from that. 
You could fast from certain kinds of foods. There's a fast in the Bible called the Daniel fast. It's kind of popular a couple of years ago, right? Decades ago or something. You can fast certain kinds of food. You can fast caffeine. <laughs> Good luck. Uh, yeah, nope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you can fast from sugar. You can fast from drinking alcohol. You can fast just from a meal, breakfast or lunch. You could fast from talking or shopping online. All the husbands said amen. Um, oh, 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 hold on, guys. Uh, you can also fast from sex. That's in the Bible. You can fast from social events. All the, introver- all the introverts said amen, right? You can fast from certain activities or hobbies, certain habits that fill all of your free time. Uh, moms are like, I'm going to fast from cooking dinner. This sounds great, right? Uh, you can fast from sleeping in. You can fast from sleep. You can lose an hour of sleep in order to pray and talk to the Lord. So what then is fasting? If it's not just fasting from food, let me ask you a question. Are any of those things I said sin or evil? No. no. Well, we did say social media, but uh, no, 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 not in moderation. None of those things are sin. In fact, almost, almost all of those things are really good things, right? Dude, most of those things I said, common graces, gifts of God, food, amen, sex. Okay, you guys are there. Not, you're not there yet. That's okay. You're not there yet. All right. That's all right. Dude, recreation, hobbies. Oh, dude, hiking, gifts of God, community, relationships, gifts of God. Dude, all of those things, good food, good drink, gifts from the loving creator for our joy and his glory. Amen, right? What then is fasting? What is fasting then? It's not just simply repenting from sin. It's abstaining from good to make room for great. Yeah? It's saying no to natural good things to make room for supernatural great things. Right? It's saying no to good, God-given appetites. God gave you those appetites, bro. Good desires. But to say to those desires and those appetites, like God says to the ocean, this far you will come and no farther. Right? So while food nourishes your body, man, my, my soul longs for that which nourishes my soul. Right? As John Piper says, when I eat, I rejoice in the symbol of heavenly bread. When I fast, I rejoice in the reality the symbol points to. So often, with so many Christians, it's not right out sin that stops you from growing with God. Let me say that again. So often, with so many Christians, it is not right out sin that stops you from flourishing with God. Now, I'm sure some of us are struggling with right out sin, lying, porn, right, substance abuse. I know, for sure, right? But for many of us, it's not blatant sinful things that stop you. It's the little foxes in the vineyard that stop it from producing fruit, right? It's, it's good things, but have grown to a place of unhealthy dominance and start asserting unhealthy, destructive authority over our lives. Good things can stop you from growing with God. Hello? Sex is a wonderful example of this. I don't want to scandalize anyone, uh, but sex is a good thing. Husbands, be quiet. Okay, shh, doing you a favor. Um, It's like one of God's first commands. Be fruitful and multiply. Song of Solomon. It's a book in the Bible. Very strange, right? I tried some of the pickup lines towards my wife one time. I was like, I was like, your teeth, your teeth, 
or like a flock of shown shoon oars, you sheep that come from the washing, right? All of which bear twins. Not one among them has lost its youth. Anyway, it's a, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Your neck's like an ivory tower. I'm just quoting scripture to you. Uh, your nose, like the Tower of Lebanon. Yeah, that's a, uh, didn't translate. Didn't translate. Let me save you the effort, boys. Uh, the point is, sorry, that was just stupid. Uh, the point is, God's the one who came up with sex. And there's a really weird book in the Bible, and I guess he was in a really nifty mood the day he did. But the larger point is that it's a good thing. And yet, that appetite, essential for human flourishing, bro, ladies, essential for human flourishing. Like, we're not going to live much longer if that stops. Okay, really good thing God gave us. That appetite has been the ruin of many, hasn't it? Hmm? That appetite has destroyed lives, crashed and burned, man, obliterated, obliterated families, ruined communities. Good thing. But dude, if that good thing grows out of healthy, God-given boundaries, it be- the gift becomes a curse. And many of you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? If we use it how God intends us to use it, oh, dude, blessing children, stability, intimacy. But if you jerk the wheel out of God's hand and say, I know what this is for, I'll take it from here. If you make it to satisfy your unrestrained appetite, however you see fit, it will ruin you. Dude, it's a good thing. Many men have fallen victim to their own appetites in this way. As the proverb says, numerous are those slaughtered by sex, by promiscuity. Good thing. But it can go south, can it? Food, another great example. It's a good thing. Amen. <laughs> Dude, it's one of the key metaphors in scripture that Jesus uses for himself. I am the bread of life. It's a good thing. It's meant to satisfy your hunger. Dude, sustains, gives strength. Universal symbol for abundance and human flourishing. But our appetite for food can go unrestrained. And man, when it goes unrestrained, it can actually end up hurting us. Hmm? I don't care what your genetics are. I'm not talking about how your body looks. I'm talking about your relationship with food. And it can be destructive to flourishing when we use that relationship for self-medication. When we use that relationship with food for comfort. I don't care what your body looks like. All right? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about our relationship to it. All right? When we use it to deal with stress or anxiety or anger. When we use it to um, stuff our stomachs so we can ignore the emptiness in our souls. Right? We're just thinking about how we relate to it. And that relationship can go south, become destructive in our lives. And on and on and on and on we could go. All hobbies, entertainment, desire for leisure time, desire for security, all good things. But if those things go unchecked, has a tendency to grow like a vine under the surface of your life and suck up all the nutrients. So you can't grow with God. Choke out any ability you could have to grow with God. Jesus talked about this. Y'all, it's often not those blatantly visible sins that you can see from a mile away that choke out your spiritual life. It's the good things that you have not put God-given boundaries around. In A Hunger for God, John Piper says this, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. Say it again. The greatest enemy of hunger for God. Do you have a hunger for God? Do you have a desire to know him, to love him, to grow in affections for him? Oh, he says, well, the greatest enemy of that, if you don't have it, the greatest enemy is not poison, but it's apple pie. 
It's not the banquet of the wicked that doles our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the prime time dribble of triviality we drink in every night. Prime time dribble of triviality. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love. Hello? The banquet table of what? His love. What keeps you from that? Man. Is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. Luke 14 is what we read. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not, the po- are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. So don't hear what he's not saying. John, Piper, nor Jesus is suggesting land, oxen, and spouses are somehow a disadvantage to your spiritual life. They are good things that should cause you to well up in gratitude to the giver of all good gifts. These things can and should only increase your enjoyment of God when we acknowledge who they are from. But it's when they take the place of God. It's when possessions, relationships, romance take the place of God in our hearts that they've grown out of their health through God-given purposes and begin to exert unhealthy dominance over your life. I've heard it say this way, your appetites are wonderful, ser- wonderful servants. They were made to serve you. Your appetites were made to serve you, to reveal God to you. Uh, they're wonderful servants, but they are oppressive masters. They're not meant to rule over you. When your appetites and desires begin to rule over you, man, when they go unrestrained, unchecked, you become a slave to the thing that was meant to be a slave to you. Hmm? You become a servant of the thing that was meant to serve you. And this to me, y'all, this idea, is such a compelling way to understand the earth in which we live. All of it brimming with creative goodness and pleasure and delight. Is it not? If you've been to the Grand Canyons, the ocean, you had good food, um, good food, right? All of it, recreation, leisure, all of it brimming with creative goodness and at the same time has the potential to ruin us when it gets out of God-given boundaries. Y'all, think about it. One of the fundamental realizations you have to have to become a Christian is the, real, is the realization that you are not wise enough to run your life. Over and over, the things I think bring life to me actually bring death. The things that I think, that's good, do that more, actually ends up drowning me. And y'all, if we are ever to intellectually trust God holistically, We have to see him as smarter than us and trustworthy to to help us see which desires are good and right and which ones we have to say, hey, this is your lane. You better stay in it. Some of us just aren't there when it comes to God. Some of us just aren't there. We're not ready to say you're smarter than me. We're still convinced that we know more than him when it comes to our appetites and which ones we should yield to, right? And it's possible that this underlying issue of trust is ruining your life because it means that you bow before every pressing appetite You see what I mean? The question we have before us, I think, is who is the most competent, trustworthy person to tell us how to handle our appetites and desires? Is it you or is it God? But back to the point. 
It's actually our own desires that can ruin us when they go unchecked. You know the Buddhists know this? Have you ever studied Buddhism? Siddhartha Gautama? He said, that's his name, that's the Buddha. Um, isn't that right, David? Yeah, that's right, I knew you knew that. Um, he said, uh, we suffer because we desire. That's what Buddha said. So he said, okay, if we're going to end suffering, we have to end desire. That's the path. So in other words, if we want to have a happy life, the goal, the, the, the door is to stop hoping for good. Detach. That's what the Buddha says. Detach. You're going to find peace by caring less. And then you will not suffer. Christianity does not say that. Christianity does not cauterize your desires. In fact, it says those desires were given to you by God to show you who he is. They are good things, right? But they have to stay under the wisdom of God to give life or they'll bring death, right? And in this way, man, our own appetites and desires uh, have been likened by many authors. I can't remember who I heard this from originally. Our appetites and desires for sex, food, all these good things have been likened to a river. Let's think about it for a second, all right? A river gives life, doesn't it? You ever seen a valley uh, with a river in it in the middle of the desert? The Nile is like this on the top side of it. It's just green. It's just brown, 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 and then boom, beautiful green all up on the G. If you look at like the Google Earth, it's really fascinating. Rivers give life, dude. They give sustenance. They carry water to everything, and everything needs water, and everything grows around a river, right? What a fascinating picture of God's good appetites that he's given us. They were meant to give life. But have you ever seen a flooded river that's consuming everything in its path? Have you ever seen when the river trans transgresses its boundaries and it begins to rip trees out of the ground and dash bridges and just carry whole houses down valleys? Have you ever seen a river like this? Utter destruction. Dude, utter destruction. Like nothing gets out in its path. It destroys what was meant to give life. Now is just, this, it's just like eating life. It's ripping it up, right? And I think some of us have to pause right now because you've realized this is what's going on in your own heart and life. You're realizing right now, that's why my life's felt chaotic and destructive. It's not some horrible, blatant sin. It's good things. They've just grown out of God-given boundaries and they're ruining me. It's when good things, y'all, good things grow out of these places that they become what John Piper says, idols. And dude, what's the first of the Ten Commandments? It's a big deal. Some of our lives are being ruined not by bad desires, but by good desires gone rogue. Hmm? And it's when these things become substitutes for God, as he says, that they have the effects of what he calls uh, the deadening effect of innocent delights. Think about this. Deadening, deadening, right? Effect of innocent delights, which means that these good things can numb us, deaden us from being able to experience God. Fascinating thought, isn't it? The desire for companionship and a spouse, good thing. The desire for money, it's good, y'all. It's not bad. The desire for physical intimacy, the desire for even pleasure, all good things. They're just not God. And because they aren't God, can never succeed in fulfilling you. Therefore, you will be increasingly stuffing in more and more and more and increasingly angry that your soul is not satisfied. 
And when your soul is stuffed with small things, there's no room for great things. To summarize, anything can keep you from growing as a Christian, not just sin. Let me read a few more things and we'll get out of here. I'll give you some application. uh, Richard Foster says this. More than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. This is a wonderful benefit, actually, to the true disciple who longs to be transformed into the image of Jesus. We cover up what is inside of us with food and other things. Fasting is how we check ourselves. It's how we find out what our true source of spiritual life really is and reveal those things that may be exerting unhealthy control over our spirits. Fasting is how we say, in the most practical, tangible way, I will not be enslaved by anything. Or as 1 Corinthians 6, 12 puts, as he's talking about food and sex, all things are lawful for me, but but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Y'all, fasting is how we see what's really been dominating us. We're not proving anything to God. In fact, it's our appetites that need to be spoken to. And it's only when we remove these self-medicating methods, these coping mechanisms, do we find, number one, how much we really relied on them in the first place, and number two, it can have the effect of clearing the air to help us tune in to how God might be trying to lead us in this season. So let me just end by, with, by inviting you into something with me. Very, very practical, very, very tangible. Uh, I will be fasting. I want to invite you in, okay? Um, lunch on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Now I said it, now I have to do it. So <sighs> here we go. Along with some other things that I'm keeping between me and the Lord. Um, I want to invite you uh, to do this with me if you would be so crazy. <laughs> to fast lunch Tuesdays and Thursdays. And I want to invite you not just to take something out, but I want to invite you to put something in. I want, you, I want to invite you to put an essential practice in the place. I want to invite you uh, to pray for our church. Tuesdays and Thursdays during lunch. I want to ask you to make some space, right? To ask God that this shell would make an eternal impact. couple things I'd like you to focus on if you should be so crazy to join me in this. I want to ask you to ask God that we would begin to impact our community in new and profound ways. I want to ask you to ask God that outsiders would be brought in and that they would meet him. That God would use this place to bring salvation to whole households. All right? Um, I want to ask that you would pray about individual and corporate maturity and spiritual health in this place amongst our friends and people. Some of you have friends in this room. Okay, dude, pray for them. Ask God to grow them. Dude, and if you're just like, I don't know what to pray for, dude, pray for me, man. Dude, just pray for, for heaven's sake. Dude, pray for me, please. Pray for the relationships in this room. Dude, right here, pray for the marriages in this room. Can I tell you something? God hates your, I mean, sorry, not God, whoops. The, the enemy hates your marriage. Yeah, let's get that right. Yeah, God made it to be an image of him. The enemy hates it. Dude, pray for the marriages in this room. Let's just be real. Some of them, last thread. Dude, let's ask God to restore marriages. Let's ask God to intervene in the relationships that matter most in this room amongst us, y'all. 
Like if our inner lives are falling apart, it doesn't matter what God brings us, we're not going to be able to sustain it. We need to get our house in order. What I'm asking you is to pray for the internal development maturity of the people around you. Pray that we wouldn't settle for churchianity. Pray that we wouldn't settle for superficial relationships, right? Some of you, maybe like that's not enough and you're going to want to go like three, four day stretches. Dude, go with God, bro. That's awesome, all right? If you want to try that. Maybe some of you in this room are like, my relationship with food is not quite ready for that. Dude, totally cool. How about social media? How about your, inter- your evening entertainment? Listen, many of us as Christians spend every day pampering ourselves. You ever seen Parks and Rec? Treat yourself, All right? If you can't remember, look at me, look at me. If you can't remember the last time you said no to yourself, more than likely your God, your God is your stomach. So why don't we together as a group of friends practice saying no to ourselves? Really good things, dude, good things, so that we can make room for great things. I want to challenge you, man, for the next 21 days. I want you to stand up straight in your walk with God. I want to get your house in order so that we would be ready for what God wants to do in this place. Because I believe he has great plans for us as a group of people to impact this community for his kingdom. And I tell you what, dude, if your influence ever grows wider, then your roots grow deep, you're going to topple over. You know what we're praying for right now? Is that our roots would grow deep. So that we could handle structurally what God wants to do in this place. Um, and I want to end today um, by saying something really direct to you. Uh, right now, um, I want everyone who feels hopeless in this room to look at me. If you feel hopeless right now, winter can be long, can it? Winter's dark. Everything looks dead. Sun's not as close, right? It's not as warm. The tree, everything looks dead, right? We said that. I think some of you today need to acknowledge that you've been in a winter season in your soul. Maybe it's anger or depression. Maybe it's sin that you can't shake. Maybe it's apathy. But the vibrancy of your life, the, spiritual, uh, the spirituality has just drained off the page. The color's gone, right? Um, and if that's you, if you feel like you're just in a winter, if that's a spiritual parallel for the picture you feel. I just want you to raise your hand right now. You feel like it's a winter season. All right. All right. Let's pray. Let's pray. Jesus, God, over every heart who has been honest before you. That was, that's a guts, man. Lord, would you meet them right now, Jesus? God, I pray that you would, um, just in your mercy, begin to open eyes Um, Not only to the places that are causing the winter, but to the spring coming over the horizon. God, I pray that you would open my friend's eyes right now to the landscape around them. And Lord, as they drive home and they see the grass turning greener, God, and the color flooding back into the landscape. God, you just be whispering to their souls, I'm coming. Spring's coming. It's been a hard season, but it's about to end in the name of Jesus. Can I say something to you right now? Dude, you are not doomed to this season for the rest of your life. Can you hear it? Can you hear it? If you, if you raised your hand, I want to say you are not doomed to this season for the rest of your life. 
God has come to give life. So Father, would you do it? God, would you send the spring rains, Lord? God, would you begin to change the landscape of our lives that feel hopeless in this room? We thank you, Jesus. And we pray these things, amen. Lewis got at the feeling that we just articulated in his children's book, Chronicles of Narnia. If you remember, the problem in Chronicles of Narnia that it was always winter and never Christmas, never spring. But you know what happens in the book is that Aslan comes and only when that Christ figure came into the land does the ice begin to thaw and the sun begin to warm and color flood back into the landscape. Can I just, dude, God's on the move. God's on the move. Thanks so much for coming, guys. Listen, if you raise your hand, I want to encourage you. Don't leave today without getting prayer for what's going on in your heart and life. I think God's here to, to meet you. All right, love you guys. We'll see you next time.